Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Joan Rogers and her two daughters, Michelle and Christy, set off on a thousand-mile road trip from their farm in Ohio to Florida for the vacation of a lifetime. As they headed out, Joan's husband, Hal, said his goodbyes and watched them leave. Little did Hal know, he would never see them alive again. From the south shore of Lake Erie, this is Great Lakes True Crime. Real quick, before we get started, we have a brand new website. Check it out at podpage.com slash Great Lakes True Crime. That's right, I go with the free websites, but that works for me. You'll find information on the show there, including listening links, contact information, our online merchandise store, and a donate button to help support the show. That's podpage.com slash Great Lakes True Crime. Joan and Hal Rogers, both aged 36, owned a dairy farm in the tiny village of Wilshire, Ohio, only about a half mile from the border of Indiana. The couple had two daughters, 17-year-old Michelle and 14-year-old Christy. Hal and Joan, who went by Joe, were high school sweethearts and got married soon after graduation in 1971 when they found out that Joe was pregnant. Michelle was born in February 1972, while Christy followed in October 1974. Between the two of them, Joe was much more outgoing, while Hal had an introverted way about him. They meshed well as a couple, as Joe would push Hal to occasionally get out dancing or some other activities that might be a little outside of his comfort zone normally. Of the two daughters, Michelle was quieter and was described as a bit of a tomboy, while Christy had a bubbly and cheerful personality. In fact, she was a cheerleader and had a lot of friends at school. Joe and Hal both worked at the 300-acre family dairy farm, and they worked hard. It wasn't an easy lifestyle, 
but they managed to earn a decent living at it after starting with virtually nothing. Neither came from well-to-do families, but they were determined to make it in farming. On top of working at the farm, Joe worked nights driving a forklift at a distribution center across the state line in Indiana, mainly to provide health care benefits for the family. But this lifestyle was exhausting, with two jobs and two kids to raise. Joe was said to have been rail thin, even gaunt looking. Basically, she worked herself to the bone. For his part, Hal worked the farm morning to night, sometimes working all night without catching any sleep. The girls had their share of farm duties as well, milking cows before and after school, and doing a host of other chores. If life wasn't difficult enough already for the Rogers family, Hal's brother, John Rogers, turned it into a nightmare. John lived on the farm property in a trailer, and he worked on the farm as well. People in town said he was a bit strange, always walking around in army fatigues and claiming that he had been in the Secret Service and CIA, because most Secret Service and CIA agents live in a trailer on their brother's farm, right? It turned out that John Rogers didn't just act strange, that he was downright evil. John actually had a girlfriend for a time who lived with him in his trailer, They broke up after not too long. Shocker, I know. But the woman continued to stay in the trailer until she could find a place of her own. One night, as she returned to the trailer, she was attacked by a masked man who blindfolded and handcuffed her. He threatened to kill her with a knife if she screamed and then violently sexually assaulted the woman, who could easily tell by the man's voice that it was her ex-boyfriend, John Rogers. Adding insult to injury, John not only attacked the woman, he also videotaped the entire ordeal. After the attack, the ex-girlfriend reported the incident to police, who got a search warrant and searched John's trailer and the surrounding property. They quickly found the videotape of the attack, but that wasn't the only disturbing material they found. Also in the trailer were nude photos of a teenage girl who had also been blindfolded. That teenage girl, it turns out, was John's own niece and his brother Hal's daughter, Michelle. He had apparently been sexually assaulting her for several years and threatened to kill her if she told anyone. Michelle chose not to testify against her uncle at trial, choosing instead to live a normal life, and the charges against John for the crimes against Michelle were dropped. John did, however, plead no contest to the rape charge against his ex-girlfriend and was sentenced to serve 7 to 25 years in prison. On top of this, the mother of John and Hal sided with John through all this, saying her precious pervert of a son couldn't have possibly done these horrible things. Michelle, her granddaughter, must have been making it up. The whole saga was devastating to the Rogers family, particularly for Hal, who sank into a deep depression. He felt guilty that these horrible crimes happened to his daughter on his own property. He later expressed that, given the chance, he would have killed John for what he did. 
The family decided that it was time to take an out-of-state vacation, something they had never done before, to clear their minds and have some fun for a change. It would be the trip of a lifetime, a thousand-mile road trip to Florida from their home in northwest Ohio. The itinerary was packed with visits to multiple theme parks, a zoo, and other tourist attractions. They hoped to squeeze in some time at the beach as well. The only drawback to the trip was that Hal couldn't go with Joan and the girls. There was too much work to be done on a daily basis on the dairy farm. On top of that, the annual rain cycle was off that year, so Hal was late getting the crops planted. If he didn't get them in as soon as possible, he would miss the harvest. But Hal was fully supportive of the rest of the family going on vacation and enjoying themselves. On May 26, 1989, Joan and her daughters set about on their trip, driving a 1986 Blue Oldsmobile Calais down Interstate 75, stopping in Georgia to spend the night before finishing the drive the next day. They began the vacation with a trip to the Jacksonville Zoo and Kennedy Space Center on the Atlantic coast of Florida. From there, they would travel to Orlando in central Florida for visits to SeaWorld, Epcot Center, and MGM Studios. After the Orlando leg of the trip, they traveled west to the Tampa area on the Gulf Coast, arriving on June 1st. On the itinerary for their time in Tampa was a trip to Busch Gardens Amusement Park and, if they had time, a visit to the beach in Clearwater. But first they checked into their hotel, a day's in on Rocky Point Island in Old Tampa Bay. A businessman in town from Texas noticed Joan and her daughters at the hotel's restaurant about 7 o'clock that evening. He said that he wasn't staring at them, but couldn't help but notice that they seemed to be in a good mood, apparently having a great time on vacation. As they got up to leave, Michelle glanced at the man and said hi as she left the restaurant. That was on June 1st. By June 4th, Hal began to worry as the girls were supposed to have arrived home, and he hadn't heard from them in a few days. It wasn't like Joe did not call, especially to let Hal know when they were setting out on their trip home. That same morning, passengers aboard a sailboat passing by the Sunshine Skyway Bridge notified the U.S. Coast Guard that they saw a body floating in the water, and it looked like the person was a murder victim. That same morning, passengers aboard another sailboat north of the Skyway Bridge also reported a body in the water, And a couple hours later, a third body was reported by yet another boat out in the bay in the same vicinity as the second body. The three female bodies were taken to the Coast Guard station until police could come and begin an investigation. The circumstances were the same for each of the three bodies. They were all naked from the waist down with their hands and feet tied. Whoever killed them had also tied a rope around their neck to a concrete block. From what they could see, police believed the three were sexually assaulted, bound, gagged, weighed down with the concrete block, and then thrown overboard alive. It was a horrific way to die, and the cruelty was almost too much to fathom. Police had the three bodies and had a good idea of what happened to them, but they had no idea who they were. 
They had no tattoos or unusual piercings. There had been no recent reports of missing females. And the bodies had been badly decomposed after being in salt water for three days. They couldn't even guess what ages they may have been. The case garnered a lot of attention in local media and became known as the Bodies in the Bay Murders. Meanwhile, back in Ohio, by June 7th, Hal Rogers was in full-on panic mode. He made phone calls to the Ohio Highway Patrol and the Van Wert County Sheriff's Office, both to no avail. He had been imagining all kinds of horrible scenarios in his mind, but the one thing they all had in common was that someone did something to his family. It had to feel like a helpless situation. Remember, back then there were virtually no cell phones, no social media, no email. If someone was traveling, you had no way of contacting them. You just sat by the home phone and waited for it to ring. Having had enough, Hal decided he needed to take matters into his own hands and conduct a search on his own. He withdrew $7,000 from the bank to fund his effort, but it turned out not to be needed in the end. The following morning, June 8th, the housekeeping staff at the Days Inn where Joan and the girls had stayed knew that something must be wrong. The room had been cleaned every day for a week, and through all that time, nothing in the room moved. Clothes, toothbrushes, shoes, everything stayed in place. It was obvious that nobody had been in the room for quite some time, so the hotel manager called Tampa police to report their suspicions. Police learned that someone named Joan Rogers had checked in on June 1st. Fingerprints were taken from a tube of toothpaste in the hotel room and compared to prints from the bodies found in the bay. They had a match. They confirmed the identities by obtaining dental records from Ohio. They finally had names and identities to match the bodies, so the next order of business was to notify the next of kin. Sheriff Stan Owens of Van Wert County drove to the Rogers farm that afternoon and broke the devastating news to Hal. In his grief, Hal kept on milking cows. There are no days off in farming. But he was also helping with the investigation by providing details of the trip so police could reconstruct their journey as best as possible. A triple funeral for Joe, Michelle, and Christy was held on June 13, 1989, at Zion Lutheran Church in Wilshire. Joan's Blue Oldsmobile was found at a boat ramp along the Courtney Campbell Causeway. Inside, police found some stationery from the Days Inn that had directions to the boat ramp written on it. They also found a Clearwater Beach brochure with directions to the Days Inn written on the back with a hand-drawn map next to it. Although the police conducted a thorough investigation, no real leads turned up and the case went cold after a few weeks. As is the case in many murders involving a couple, at first Hal was looked upon with some suspicion, even though he was a thousand miles away at the time of the murders. Fellow residents of Wilshire and surrounding areas remarked about how he always wore dark glasses, he didn't show any emotion, and didn't seem to be talking to anyone about his grief. 
Some people speculated that perhaps Hal was somehow in cahoots with his rapist brother, John. Others thought he maybe stood to gain financially from the deaths. Hal apparently did have a life insurance policy on Joe, but it was said to be so small that it didn't raise any suspicion. Police questioned Hal extensively, and he voluntarily took a polygraph test. After passing the polygraph, Hal was officially cleared as a suspect, and investigators were now confident that the women met their murderer while in Florida. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. About two months before the murders of Joan, Michelle, and Christy, two Canadian women on holiday in Madeira Beach, Florida, not too far south of Clearwater Beach, met a very tan, quote, Florida man, on May 14, 1989. He introduced himself as Dave Posno, and he offered to take the two ladies on a boat ride the next morning. One of the women declined, but her friend, a 24-year-old blonde social worker, did go out on his boat the next morning, but without incident. When they returned to shore, the man offered to take the two on a sunset cruise that evening. The friend declined again, but the other woman went again, bringing her camera to take sunset photos from the boat. Once they were a couple miles offshore, the man's mood changed drastically. He pushed himself on her, hugging and groping her body. When she tried to resist, the man threatened to tape her mouth shut. He had a roll of duct tape and said, quote, Is sex worth losing your life over? End of quote. The assailant returned the woman to John's Pass on Madeira Beach, where he had picked her up hours earlier and sped off. She didn't report the assault immediately to police, but she did the next morning, and she provided a clear description of her attacker. She said he was about 37 to 40 years old, 5 feet 9 or 5 feet 10, about 200 pounds and stocky with a pot belly. She provided other physical descriptions and stated that he drove a dark blue Isuzu Trooper with tinted windows. His boat was blue with a white interior and was approximately 20 feet long. The woman thought that the only reason he didn't kill her was because he knew her friend could identify him. A question that comes to mind is why he assaulted her at all, knowing both the woman and her friend could identify him, and his car, and his boat, 
Maybe he thought the attack wouldn't be reported or that he could claim that it was consensual sex. In any case, when Madeira Beach police heard about the triple murder of the Rogers women, they felt strongly that the rape case in that case had many similarities. They passed on the information to St. Petersburg police, who were the investigators for the murders, but they were swamped with hundreds of leads, most of which were of little or no use, so they set this information aside for some time. When St. Petersburg police did look into the assault, they discovered that there was no boat registered in Florida to a man named Dave Posno or any similar name. They also found no Isuzu Trooper registered to a Dave Posno, and the less information they could find on this guy, the more credibility he gained as a suspect, whoever he was. A year after the murders, police had sifted through about 1,800 leads but really weren't any closer to making an arrest. The officers who had been investigating the case were reassigned, with police wanting a new, fresh set of eyes looking at the evidence. Everything was re-examined, including that Clearwater Beach brochure with the hand-drawn map and directions written on the back. The original police had assumed Joan did the drawing and writing, but they had a handwriting analyst take a look at everything, and it was discovered that someone else had actually drawn the map and written the directions to the hotel. Police also found a palm print on the brochure that didn't belong to Joan or either of her daughters. Unfortunately, it also didn't match anyone in their database. But this was the break that police needed. Incidentally, it seems that a fair number of cases are cracked after someone takes a fresh look at old evidence and whatever assumptions were originally made are discarded. I'm guessing there's some kind of lesson to be learned there, but I'm not sure what it is. Far be it from me to tell police how to do their job. Anyway, with a strong suspicion that the handwriting belonged to the killer, or at least someone who knew who the killer was, police went public with it. They provided photocopies of the handwritten directions and the map to the media, and they even went so far as to post it on billboards in the area. There was also a $25,000 reward available for information leading to an arrest. Someone had already been thinking that they may know who the killer was. Ever since that original police sketch was released just after the murders, Tampa resident Joanne Steffi kept that sketch taped on a refrigerator thinking it looked a lot like her former neighbor, a contractor named Oba Chandler. Chandler had lived two doors down the street with his wife and young daughter, and he also happened to have a blue and white boat, just as the killer did. Even before the murders, Joanne got a bad vibe from Chandler. She called in a tip alerting police to her suspicions, but nothing came of it. When police issued a new appeal for information, sharing the handwriting sample, Joanne was determined to get something handwritten by Chandler to see if her suspicions were correct. She convinced a neighbor to show her a written estimate that Chandler had provided her for work to be done. As soon as she saw his handwriting, Joanne was 100% certain that Oba Chandler was the killer. She faxed the handwriting sample to police where it promptly made its way 
to the bottom of a pile of tips. It sat there for two months while police investigated a whole bunch of other leads that they had received. Eventually, Joanne grew frustrated that police were not following up on her tip. She finally called the station and told police she was going to hire her own private investigator if they didn't, quote, do their job. With that, police had the handwriting analyzed by a professional, and it was a match. They decided to dig a little deeper and found that Chandler lived on the Atlantic coast of Florida near Daytona Beach, but had lived in Tampa at the time of the murders. Apparently, after the sketch of him was released to the public, Chandler abruptly closed his aluminum siding business and hightailed it out of Tampa with his wife and daughter. They first took off to California and had their vehicle repossessed, committed a few robberies, and ended up back in Florida. Chandler had a record going all the way back to the time he was 14, and some of his crimes were sexual in nature. An internal meeting was held by police to discuss the idea that Chandler could potentially be their man. At the end of the meeting, everyone was asked to share their thoughts. It was then that an office assistant pointed out something that none of the detectives on the case had noticed. A probation photo of Chandler looked exactly like the sketch that had been made by police in the case involving the Canadian woman. They now had their man. On top of the handwriting match, the police sketch match, and the same type of boat, after Chandler was arrested, his prints were taken. They matched that palm print left on the Clearwater Beach brochure. But police didn't have much more than a hunch at this point, so Chandler couldn't be arrested for murder. They needed to get him behind bars, though, before he could harm anyone else. And the quickest way to do that would be to get him on the rape charge of the Canadian tourist. Chandler's home in Port Orange, Florida, was put under constant surveillance, even using the assistance of an FBI airplane, and a wiretap was placed on his home phone. At a Holiday Inn hotel in Hamilton, Ontario, law enforcement officials got the Canadian woman and her friend to positively identify Chandler through photographs. Soon after that, Chandler was arrested for rape outside a gas station without incident. As he sat in jail awaiting trial for the rape charge, police were busy building the triple murder case against him. A fair amount of evidence was collected from a search of his home. Much more damning, however, was a conversation police had with Chandler's niece in Cincinnati, Apparently, when the composite drawing of Chandler had been released to the media, he skipped town and traveled up to Cincinnati to stay with his niece for a while. While there, he admitted that he had raped a woman and killed three other people. Why this information didn't come forward earlier is anyone's guess, but it was enough to present the triple murder case to a grand jury. Five years after the murders of Joe, Michelle, and Christy, Oba Chandler went on trial for the crimes. The key witness for the prosecution in the trial was the Canadian woman. Through tearful testimony, she said once they were on the boat, he was very upfront about his intentions to assault her. That emotional testimony, combined with the handwriting analysis and the palm prints, made for a very strong case against Chandler. 
the jury took less than two hours to come up with a verdict. Guilty on three counts of murder. When it came to time to sentence him, the judge told Chandler, quote, You have not only forfeited your right to live among us, but under the laws of the state of Florida, you have forfeited the right to live at all. End of quote. Oba Chandler was sentenced to death by lethal injection. The judge went on to lament the horror that must have been felt by the three, and especially for the last victim who had to first watch the other two get thrown overboard with cinder blocks tied to their heads, knowing her inevitable fate. What seems to have happened was Joe and the children stopped in Clearwater and asked a random stranger for directions to the Days Inn. That random stranger happened to be Chandler, and he apparently asked the three if they would like to go out on his boat for a sunset cruise that evening on Tampa Bay. He probably seemed friendly enough, and the three agreed to join him. In any case, Oba Chandler was executed by lethal injection on November 15, 2011, at the age of 65, In the 17 years he was in prison prior to the execution, he never got one visit from a friend or family member. Chandler wrote a last statement with some BS saying that they were executing a, quote, innocent man. Of course, no one believed him. Why do people who are clearly guilty still lie about their crimes up until the end? Seems like it would be better to go out with at least the slightest shred of dignity by offering some contrition for what you did. Hal Rogers was given the option to attend the execution of Chandler if he wanted to. He wasn't sure if he would, but he ultimately did, sitting in the witness room with 20 other people and 11 media members. He didn't say anything to reporters afterward, but his niece, Mandy Scarlett, later read a statement at a news conference. It read, quote, The family of Joe, Michelle, and Chris are very appreciative of everyone that has brought us to this day. The journey has been difficult for all of us involved. We have always been grateful to those who brought us to this place, and we were grateful that they brought us back home to us. Now is the time for peace. End quote. Tired of the constant loneliness, Hal Rogers eventually decided to get back out there, putting a personal ad in the local newspaper. He ended up meeting a woman, a widow, and the two of them were eventually married. The couple still live on a farm in Wilshire, Ohio. One quick note before we go, I wanted to let you know about a live theater production running now through November 7th, 2021 at the Beck Center in Lakewood, Ohio, just west of Cleveland. It's a docudrama called The Exonerated, and it recounts first-person narratives in dramatic form through the legal records of six wrongly convicted inmates. If you're interested, visit beckcenter.org. It's a great little theater, and you may catch me there from time to time. Also, I haven't been doing as many streaming reviews lately, but I did recently catch The Museum on BritBox, It's a Welsh drama, so it's subtitled for those of us who can't speak Welsh, and it focuses on a museum director who plunges into a pretty dark place after beginning an affair with her husband's, behind her husband's back. It's definitely got some unexpected twists and turns in the plot. 
I'd categorize it as part true crime, part psychological thriller. Somewhat similar to Dr. Foster or Apple Tree Yard, if you've ever seen either of those British shows. But I highly recommend it if you have access to BritBox or any other way to stream the museum. That's it for this episode of Great Lakes True Crime. If you like the show, please tell a friend and leave us a five-star review if you can. That really helps us out. You can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Great Lakes True Crime. We don't do Patreon here, so thank you to the show supporters who brought, bought me a virtual cup of coffee through our website. Speaking of which, don't forget we have a new webpage at podpage.com slash Great Lakes True Crime. This has been Steve, your host and producer. Thanks for listening, buys. Tell me I'm crazy. Mulder, you're crazy.